Welcome to this edition of Gabrielle Dolan's Authentic Leadership Podcast. Join Gabrielle as she speaks to well-known leaders on authentic leadership values and storytelling. The aim of this podcast is to encourage you to embrace authenticity in both the professional and personal context. The stories and experience of her guests will be a wonderful catalyst for others to learn from. So joining me on today's podcast on authentic leadership and being real is the lovely Matthew Ricker, who is the Chief Customer Officer of Bank First. Um, he's also a Director of Kids Foundation and he had various roles at NAB, where I first met you, Matt, many, many, many years ago when you did a storytelling workshop with me. And I still remember the story you shared about your nana, um, and I still share it with people to this day, and every time I share it, it still almost brings me to tears. So I feel like I know you quite well from many, many years ago. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Gabrielle. Um, wonderful to be here. It's uh, my first podcast experience. So. <laughs> well, I'll go easy on you. <laughs> so the, the podcast is all, I guess maybe before we get into authentic leadership, um, you know what, you, you were at NAB for a long time, for 28 years. Um, what is your take on, I guess, the finance industry, where we've gone? So, we, you know, you're at Bank First now, so you've been in finance pretty much all your life. Mm. Um, what, what's your take on where it's at at the moment? Because it's gone, it's gone through some tough times. I think for, for a lot of people, it's, it's just disappointing. Mm. Uh, the... The situation that the industry has gotten into with a, a essentially a breach of trust yeah. with, with customers was was never anybody's intention. Uh, and there was, and, and my own reflections as being in, in various roles and senior roles in the industry was there was never a single decision point that suddenly uh, moved any organisation in the industry um, from the position that it enjoyed uh, with its customers and its people to the situation that um, sort of unfolded through the Royal Commission. Uh, it's lots and lots of little decisions, little compromises mm. that when they all add up together end up in this genuinely disappointing situation that um, I think for anybody that made any of those little decisions along the way, they never would have envisaged the, almost the snowballing of it's got to so um, that said I, I'm still very passionate uh, about the industry and I'm still proud to work in it and it's just one of those times where you've just got to work hard to uh, and better to be what we used to be uh, and respected in the in the community I am um I I, the, I mentioned your you and your nana's story and I, I often think about that now because I think you you would have started sharing that story what 10 or 12 but 12 years ago 12 years ago um and for those i I might have a go at doing it because um (laughs) and i always remember and 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 yeah well i'll probably i'll try not to cry but i remember your story was about when you first got your job at national australia bank well which was probably about 30 years ago now so you know quite a young man and you talked about how excited you were and you couldn't wait to get home to tell your parents. And when you got home, your nana was there. 
and your nana said to you, um, Matthew, you should be really proud of yourself because um, working in a bank means something. And if you work really hard, one day you could become a bank manager and they're, uh, you know, they're respected in our society. And then you go on to reflect that, you know, 20 years in the industry, how many parents or how many nanas would be proud that their grandkids work for a bank? And you'd often say that what, what you want to do is, is make our nanas proud again. Um, and and I, I just thought it was such a beautiful sentiment. And it's now that story, I think, is relevant more than more than ever before. Um, a few years ago when uh, NAB were redoing their vision and their purpose, I actually suggested that their purpose should be make our nanas proud again. <laughs> and then they could just share your story. Um, so, it, so it was, it's a, it's a beautiful story. And, I, and I, I still remember when you first shared it and we filmed it, um, you let me know about a month later your nana actually passed away. So... Yeah. It was um, it was probably one of those. It was almost poignant in a in mm. a sense that when that it was only it was actually ended up it was a couple of days before it was played to however many hundreds of people um, in what's now Marvel Stadium I think yeah. um, was that she passed away and um, it was sort of almost felt right. That in a sense that that was some of her legacy. Yeah. That, uh, you know, the tutor was left with me, but it had then um, broadened to, to other people, and yeah. um, and that it was the, their sense of um, of self and person that that was something that resonated with people. Mm. So she would have liked that. <laughs> well, and and. I'm glad she would have liked it, and a testament to her and to you, and and I guess to the power of storytelling because I still work with NAB and I still know people in NAB that still know that story about your nana so it's um the fact that you first shared it 12 years ago is um good anyway let's get on to authentic leadership so I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions um what it means to you what is you know when we talk because it's one of those words that can be sort of overused at the moment so what's what's authentic leadership mean to you I think there's there's a couple of things but for the most the most practical thing for me around authentic leadership is just sort of not pretending you know it's knowing who you are what you're good at what you're not good at what you like doing and what you don't like doing whether you're good at it or not um and and, and not trying to be something that, that you aren't uh, and i think when you when you're genuine about that to yourself then you start to surround yourself with people who offer you some of those compliments and supplements to, to but you can't do it if you're not if you're trying to pretend to yeah. be to be something else um, have, you, have you found it easier to be I mean you were always you you were at NAB you were always you have you found it easier to be that in a smaller like company like Bank First uh, I think so yes because you you the stage is a little smaller in a sense that uh and, and there's just, because it's a smaller stage and the, there's an ability to have, I guess, closer relationships, you just don't get the politicking. Yeah. <laughs> it's that simple. <laughs> um, so, so you're not having to create some, some image or, or brand per se that, um, that you tend to have to do a little bit to get rich in a, in a larger organisation where just through sheer scale, intimacy, um, 
of relationships and intimacy in a professional sense yeah. Uh, yeah. Is, is a lot harder to, um, to do. So, yeah, yeah it, it's... Um, and I think that's probably the, one of the really attractive things about mm. a small organisation is just that lack of agenda and politicking is really refreshing after a long time in a large organisation. <laughs> Is there, is there, when you think about authentic leadership, there's, is there people that come to mind that you sort of think, yeah, that, that get inspired by them? Yeah, look, uh, there, there is. Um, and, and they tend to be the sort of, you know, the, the notables in, um, uh, so the Nelson Mandela's, I, mm. I, um, I nearly said Morgan Freeman. <laughs> 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 um, um, but... Uh, but I think it's a little cliched sometimes, is, that, is those sorts of things. I actually listened to a podcast the other day where Bernie Sanders was, was on, and, and I do find him incredibly authentic. Mm. Uh, and when you look at his voting record, in, you know, he spent a long time in the, in the US um, Congress and Senate, um, that he's, he absolutely follows his, conscious, uh, his conscience and his belief set and his value set. And I think it's very, very authentic, and particularly in the, the what I think is a horrible world of US politics, um, and to, for somebody to stay true. But um, I think of the examples for me as more the, it's actually situational. I think um, every individual has an extraordinary ability to be authentic. Um, and, um, and particularly to me is what stands out is when hard yeah to be authentic when you that in real the situation is really really difficult yeah uh, that's often when it's tested isn't it yeah. it's when our values are tested when we're yeah. it's a really challenging can, situation can you stay true to yeah. the the principles that you feel strongly about and that you value when there's when you know that there's a very potentially very real consequences mm. for sticking with that and then yeah, again, this, I forget the name of the author, but he was a, um, a book I read years ago. He was a Holocaust survivor. And, um, whilst it wasn't necessarily about authentic leadership, it was more about no matter what anybody does, you can always choose how you feel about it. Yeah. And, um, but I think ultimately that was, it was a, there were elements of personal authenticity and just being ultimately true to yourself, mm. no matter what horrors are going on around you. Have you, have you, you talked about like in challenging times, that is when we are challenged, like our authentic leadership and our values, I guess. Um, have, is there a time when you have been challenged to stay true to your values and you felt like you didn't or you did or whatever? Yeah, I, I, I remember this has happened a, a couple of times is when you get that, you have that conversation with your boss at the time and they say to you, so-and-so on your team, they've got to go. Yeah. We don't like them anymore. The context is, and um, and where that's not your belief uh, that that's the right thing to do. That yep. that person is, you know, you may see that their um, their contribution differently to how others are seeing it, and but knowing you're in that situation. You're, you're taking on personal risk um, from your own career sense and, uh, and so on um, versus that obligation that you um, 
have for that individual and doing the right thing by that individual. Um, and yeah, that's a, the times that that's happened to me, it just feels terrible. I was going to say, that must be one of those times you walk out feeling sick oh, in the stomach. And you just, because you, you do feel like you, you, you know what you want to do, yet you can't escape the, the reality of the, the potential consequence and personal implications for you. Um, and yeah, I, and I don't think I can honestly say that every single time I'm, you fall on the side of the angels. <laughs> no, I think... Uh, I'm not sure anybody can, actually. I don't think anyone can. I think values is um, one of those things that's mm. very, very hard to live every day, all the time. Um, because, yeah, you the, the real test of values is when two values collide. <laughs> yeah. it was... um, but but I, I think, um, to, to me, that, that's one of the, you know, whether this is a part of you know, how we look at authentic leadership is, uh, and, I, and I do think about that, you know, from those experiences I, that I've had like that is trying to not put your own people into situations that um, causes that sort of potential values-based conflict. Um, and you know, sometimes I'm sure that you do it unwittingly, but it certainly raised the consciousness for me is um, about understanding what people's values are, what they, what's important to them, um, you know, outside of sort of material things, and, uh, and trying to you know, not, not place people um, in what they might see as compromising mm. um, situations. Do you, um, is there moments where you've looked back and regretted something? I mean, I know sometimes in hindsight you go, okay, I'd probably handle that differently, but there's, a, there's some stuff like that you go, I wish I had not have done what I, what yeah. I did. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think sometimes if you don't, if you don't regret something, you probably have tried hard enough. Yeah, true. <laughs> um, I mean, that sounds like, that potentially sounds like a wonderful rationalisation for your own, it's your own like, bad behaviour. It's like a <laughs> convenient um, story you tell yourself. It's yes. like, you know, when you fall um, over skiing. If you don't yeah. fall over skiing, you're just not trying. Yeah. Um, but by the same token, I, I do think that, you know, everything's a learning. And, um, but I think re regret is a... Um, it's one of those emotions that it's it's good up to a point. Um, it's good if it stimulates learning, but if you hang on too tightly to it, then actually it becomes. I think it becomes destructive for yeah. you, and you don't actually move forward as an individual because you kind of um, you get sort of this sense of guilt yeah. um, potentially over over that, and that just holds you from being actually who you're trying to be. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, there's... Um, and, and I think pretty much everything that, um, from a regret basis, has always come back to something to do with people. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's always, you know, did I, did I work well enough with that person? Did I provide them with the clarity that I could have? Did I support them in the way that I could have? And when, you, when your honest answer is no, um, I could have done better, I could have done more, um, and that would have been the right thing to do, then you, you're going you're to have a sense of regret. I think you're right. I think regret is, comes down to, it's, I think, letting people down. 
unemployed yeah. and you know everything comes down to that as something you regret. And I'm the atypical first child. I hate letting people down. <laughs> <laughs> Does that mean you're bossy? You're being a typical uh, first child. Well, that's a characteristic that I've chosen to ignore about oh, okay. first children. <laughs> uh, but I don't think I am actually. My my younger sister was. Far more bossy over me. Okay. Maybe um, I should ask your younger sister that question. <laughs> well, yeah, she, she'll only tell you bad things, I'm sure. That's what siblings got yes, right. Yes, of course. They, they remind you of your, um, of your character flaws frequently. So you talked before about, I guess, in a, in a smaller company, there's an opportunity to be more of yourself. In regards to... I'm noticing that CEO, CEO activism is on the rise. There's a lot more um, CEOs taking stands on social issues. Do you feel that you're in a smaller company, in a more senior position, that you can more actively do that or have done that? Um, look, I, I think it's uh, any senior role which um, gives you a platform is a position of privilege. Um, and... I think like any privilege, if it's used for good, then it's a good thing. Um, I think with any of these issues that particularly we've seen um, in the more mainstream media, there's opposite ends of, of, the, of the, particularly the social issues. There's, there's always opposite ends of, the, um, of views. And I think that if people can use platforms to enable really good dialogue and sharing of perspective rather than positional battles. Uh, I think that that's a really good place for, um, uh, for anybody in, in sort of in corporate world to enter the, the social arena. Uh, I think where it can be a little bit um, less helpful is when it, uh, that activism, if, if, uh, for the term you used, just perpetuates the positional elements of it, you know, and, and it just becomes uh, who gets more Twitter followers or yeah. um, who can yeah. shout the loudest about the same stuff because mm. I actually don't think that that takes anybody forward. Um, and I think, yeah, the, what corporations do teach you uh, in the way that you need to operate in the world is actually you, you become wiser by sharing perspectives. So I think some CEOs and people in those prominent positions have really done that quite well. And there's others that have probably not been so flash at it. Yes. They're just um, banging a drum, <laughs> if you like. One of, um, one of the other roles you play, you're a director of the, the Kids Foundation, is yeah. that what it's called? So what, what's that about and what attracted you to that? Uh, so Kids Foundation, so Kids stands for Kids in Dangerous Situations and uh, our, our approach is uh, twofold. It's about teaching kids how to live active, energetic, fulfilling lives, um, but keeping themselves safe. And it really is fundamentally some personal risk management principles is, is the guts of it, rather than you know, helicopter parenting and cotton wool. Yeah. Um, and the other side of it is we do um, injury recovery, particularly specialising in burns um, for um, not just the, the kids who suffer those um, injuries, but also the families. Um, and how they adjust and adapt to what is um, often, particularly with burns, very, very different um, uh, life approach uh, mm -hmm. because of the disfigurement and, um, uh, and the, the disabilities that sometimes burn injuries can, can create and 
um, and often how they happen as well. Mm. So, um, what so, drew you to that? What? Um, it was sort of at a time where I, I was thinking, I, I wanted to see if I could contribute outside of an organisation. Um, and, um, and also, you know, it was sort of that, how do you be a, a director of something, you know, rather than a, an executive, you know, a hands-on day-to-day manager. Um, and through another friend, I met the founder uh, of Kids Foundation, a lady called Susie O'Neill. Um, she founded Kids Foundation about oh, 25, 26 years ago. Um, so it's, um, it's been going for a long time. And uh, she also used to do Ironman, well, I think she still does do Ironman triathlon, which I was um, doing at the time. And so we, we met and I got involved and... Um, been sort of six years and um, yeah, navigating a pretty sort of choppy time for not for profits. Yeah, um, yeah it's been uh, and just another way of sort of applying yourself into a very very different context. Uh, going from again a big organisation that's just got lots and lots of money, lots and lots of resources, pretty much can do anything wants, um, to an organisation that literally scraps for every dollar um, and and is trying to make an impact with every dollar. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's um, it's been very fulfilling, um, and it's just nuts and bolts stuff too. Good stuff. What um, what would you say that is the hardest part of your job? Oh wow. Um, so, <laughs> um, I, I think that the, the hardest part for me is making sure that you are being what you need to be all of your people um, whether that's in a one-to-one um, a one to small group or a one to large group context you know, there's um, and at the same time being true to who you are but being what they need you to be you know, I'm very much of, of the, in that camp philosophical camp that um, as a leader you are in servitude of your people um, and yeah. your job is to do what they need. Um, they're, they're not there for your edification. You're there for their enablement, and that if that means um, behaving in a certain way to enable them and to get the best out of them, and to doing certain things to enable that, well, that's what you have to do. And I think that's that's hard. Yeah. Um, you know, I find it hard to always to read every situation and to read every person and to understand. You know, um, to get that level of understanding so that you can um, situationally adjust in the, in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, you know the, the quote, uh, you know, treat others how you'd like to be treated. I think that's a great quote for like empathy. I mm-hmm. think leadership though is treat others how they want to be treated. Yeah. <laughs> and that is like when you're pretty, managing... Pretty much. Yeah, and yeah. that's a, uh, you know, we've talked about situational leadership. That's different for mm-hmm. every person given any different mm-hmm. time. Um, the demands, what they want from yeah. you, and you know. it's the switch. Um, you know, you, you move out of a situation where what people need from you right there is encouragement and um, uh, some inspiration and uh, yeah, that kind of mm. that kind of thing. Something and it's let's call it upbeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then then you move into a, a conversation where actually what people need is. Um, Clip around the back of the head yeah. um, and wake up, yeah. and you know, being able to shift from one mode to another um, when literally you're walking for thirty seconds, 
um, and sort of reframing yourself, re, uh, re-centering about, okay, this is what I've got to be now. Yeah. That I do find, do find tough sometimes, particularly when you go from one end of the spectrum to the other. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is hard. <laughs> you just got to cross the corridor yeah. and be someone else. <laughs> Excellent. Um, hey, as, because part of these interviews, I always like to ask a few personal questions so you know the people listening get to know you a bit more. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? I would be a lot more organised. <laughs> um, it's one of the things you know, about. Are no, you disorganised? I wouldn't have thought no, you was disorganised. I, I, I wouldn't say I'm disorganised as such. I, I'm. I'm very. I prefer spontaneity and um, and sort of you know making my mind up when I really need to make my mind up. Um, so as a result, with that, I'm not always as organised, and I don't. And whilst I believe in disciplines and you know and operating rhythms and, and all that sort of thing, I'm not hugely good at practicing them myself in the workplace. Mm-hmm. I'm actually not bad at it outside of work. Like, you know, I'm pretty disciplined with exercise regimes and all those sorts of things. But inside of work, I'm not a good role model for that. <laughs> um, which is one of the reasons why I tend to always have you know, have a few people in around me that they are kind of and and I very and I gravitate with those people to to kind of to whack me when I'm yeah. not doing it for people. Well, um, right at the start, you said you know authentic leadership is about knowing your weaknesses and your strengths. So you know, surround yourself with organised people. But I would like to be a better, a bit more organised. Stick to an operating with them a bit more in the in the office. Yeah. And, um, but I kind of I I really do value autonomy and um, and being able to just sort of go right. This is what I feel like doing right now, so I'm going to go do it. <laughs> Is, um, is is sometimes when you when you have the the privilege and opportunity in your role to be able to do that uh, to be able to just park something and go and do something you you want to do um, that it can be quite seductive. <laughs> Sounds. Yeah. When, so when you're not at work, what are you doing? You've, you've mentioned exercise a few times, and and you know Iron Iron Man. So what do you love doing when you're not at work? Uh, I, I think. Probably the thing that I love most is actually just having conversations with, with people mm-hmm. um, on whatever topic. Um, yeah, I, I enjoy um, I enjoy that, you know, family, friends, um, yeah. I think if it's coupled with some good food and, mm-hmm. and a drink, then even better. Um, so I, I, that, that's, I think, you know, if my, my sort of, if I could think of what's, what's a perfect day, it's just having lots and lots of intriguing and interesting and curious conversations with with people that want to engage in, in those. Um, but I do, you know, I like keep fit and those kind of things. Um, but they're more kind of, would I, I, you know, I love doing that sort of, sort of stuff, otherwise you wouldn't. Um, but I think that's more about being able to then be active with other things. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, enjoy, um, have energy to do things. You, you talked about good food and wine. Have you got, are you a bit of a cook? Do you have a um, few signature dishes? <laughs> <laughs> that, um, I could not claim that because no. my, my wife could well listen to this and then she would just go absolute rubbish <laughs> um, so I, I do a, a relatively small proportion of our household cooking um, and uh, but probably the thing that I do like there's two things I do really like cooking um, one I do a bit more often than the, the other the other one is a, is a rarity is um, I like cooking bolognese and I like doing apple crumble um, oh, okay. And 
um, before you, you ask, because you'll go, why? <laughs> why those things? Um, is they were pretty, I'm pretty sure that they were the first things that my mum and my nana taught me how to cook. Um, yeah, apart from like boiling an egg or, you know, putting toast in the toaster. Um, they were the things that required at least some kind of order to how you did things and a, and a bit of a bit of method, albeit not hugely. You know, if anybody's watched MasterChef, you know that they don't require a lot of technique, but at least something. And so I think that they, yeah, they've just got that memory for me. So when I do those those things, and um, I, you know, it's probably a little bit of nostalgia in there, and yeah. the fact that. I don't have to look at a recipe. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of room for error in bolognese. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> I'm sure there's a bit more science to apple crumble, but, you know, all good. Um, what, what's um, one thing that you love or hate that people may not know about you? So that maybe, you know, the people that work for you may not know about you. Um, oh, I'm, I'm actually on, on the inside. I'm, I can be quite intolerant. Um, of certain things, um, particularly stupid things. Oh, that sounds dreadfully <laughs> harsh. No, it's um, the stupid questions annoy you. Um, really I, I, again, I, I think I, probably the people why people wouldn't really know that is because I probably present a relatively calm exterior. Um, but I, I get really, I do get frustrated about. Not so stupid questions sometimes, but sometimes you don't know that they're a stupid question until afterwards. Um, but stupid things that that happen, um, and I have this one—it's one of my kids' dreadfully embarrassing um, times where, yeah, they, they thought I was arguing with a with a flight attendant um, because she told me I had to take my iPad out of my keyboard, um, even though the keyboard. Bluetooth wasn't on, and, um, and, I, and I said, "Okay, it just it doesn't make any sense to me. It sounds like a stupid rule." Um, and I ended up, and they would be going, "Dad, and, and it's really going, embarrassing." And, and, and they, were, they were, you know, they were just going, "Oh my god, you know, we're not with him." Um, and I, as I tend to do with these sorts of things, I, I wrote to the airline, um, not about the rule, but it was more that. Um, how could you put one of your people in a position where they can't actually defend something because it's just stupid? Mm. Um, and that's what I'm intolerant about is uh, I'm intolerant of stupid things that don't make sense because you just go, well, why? Mm. And, and inside, I just, you know, it kind of, it flips me around because I go, this just doesn't make sense. So let's just do something differently. Do you find yourself in a, in a work situation to asking why are we doing this? And, oh, yeah. and when you get, oh, well, we've always we've done always that. Done like, it. Oh, yeah, a, yeah, red, yeah, that yeah. would be a red flag to you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, that's one of the things that's why, because you tend to get that everywhere you go, yeah. um, is that you have to kind of hide it, otherwise you'd be flipping out all day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, you know I'm a fan of uh, eliminating jargon, so when oh, we're yes. talking about things that yeah. annoy us, what, what's some corporate jargon uh, phrases that you, when you hear, you just go, please, stop? Uh, the, the, probably the one that, and it's just for years, and is the, let's take it offline, oh. is, is probably, um, uh, it's probably one that I, and, and I think there are, it's one of those ones that, there probably are at genuinely legitimate times that that is an appropriate 
phrase to use, but I think it's become synonymous for me for, it's too hard to talk about this right now, yeah. so we're going to avoid it. Mm. <laughs> exactly. Uh, wait, wait, then when people say take it offline, what they're really saying is, I don't want to talk about this ever yeah. again. Yep. Um, and I think that, that that's, the, that's the bit that I go, that's corporate jargon when it, it's in a, a bad context. Mm. Um, the, the other one that, that irks me is um, low-hanging fruit. <laughs> um, <laughs> again, it's sort of one of those things, you, know, you, you get the analogy on it, um, but um, I don't know how many times I've, um, I've gone into a meeting about expenses and, <laughs> and you know, expenses, low-hanging fruit, you know, yeah. they just, <laughs> they come together. <laughs> So. I, I find it ironic that we talk about the, the, things like low-hanging fruit or, you know, we, well, we need to, you know, attack the low-hanging fruit. And everyone goes, yep, yep, yep. Or, and we need to get all our ducks in a row. Yep, mm. yep. And I was like, what direction <laughs> does that provide to anyone? But yeah. everyone agrees, it nods head and agrees and walks out going, so what is the low-hanging fruit? And I, I, I realised that even though you try not to use certain jargons or even acronyms. When I, I had a, a, an outsourced team in India for a while in, in a role that I had at NAV and going over there and meeting with people and, and then because A, they're a supplier to you and culturally they're incredibly um, polite and deferential to some senior and hierarchy. Um, and you'd find yourself unwittingly using jargon or, or acronyms and things like that and people would just sort of smile and nod at you and then you'd realise they haven't understood a word mm. I've said. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, that, and that's the that's the real slap in the face you go, okay, because sometimes those those bits of corporate jargon that they they become a language that actually it, it's relatively efficient. But as soon as you get anybody that's a um, even a small outsider to that, that language they're lost and you know, the whole communication effectiveness falls to the floor, so. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so what about, um, as well as uh, you know, jargon, I love quotes. Do you have a favorite quote that you often refer to or guide you in any way? Yeah, th th this is, this, I came across this uh, probably about, um, I'm saying maybe seven or eight years ago. And the quote is, Choice is the victory of commitment over compliance. And, um, wow. So what does that mean to and, you? And, and what, what it means to me is, is if somebody believes in something, they're just, they'll just they do it in a committed way. They won't do it because they've been told to or there's a punishment if they don't. And, you know, that's, and choice, when people choose to do something, um, that's, that's so powerful um, because they believe. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I like the quote, from a leadership context because if you can get everybody choosing to do the things that are going to bring the endeavour together and make it really happen as opposed to doing it because they've been told to or they're scared of the hierarchy or the loss of a paycheck or those other lower order reasons, um, then you've got a real chance of doing something great. Um, so that's, the, that's my... Um, that's why it's my favourite favorite quote because I just get people to believe yeah. and they'll choose. That's nice. I really like it. Um, two final questions. 
the real serious ones. Yeah. This is the most serious question I'm going to ask you. What's your favourite 80s song or artist? Um, so, um, U2 and everything on the Joshua Tree album. Ah, okay. That, 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 that probably doesn't surprise me. I often get surprised. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen them live in concert? I have several times and... Um, Oh uh, yeah, I've, I've got to actually organise some tickets for this latest one they're, they're doing. This time it's going to cost me a lot more because my son is a fan too, so I'm going to have to take him along as well. Uh, so, And these days, concerts are not the cost that they used to be back in the good old days. Back in the day, um, back in the day. I reckon one of the coolest things you can do as a parent is when you love an artist and you've gone to their concerts 20, 30 years ago and your kids come along. I that's happened to me a few times not with you two but with Kylie Minogue so slightly <laughs> different but it is really cool no, we did do uh, Bon Jovi last year yeah, yeah. Uh, which was uh, which was a lot of fun um, in fact I think he enjoyed it more than I did <laughs> and, and my theory is if you keep paying for the tickets they'll keep they'll coming keep going. on <laughs> oh, no, pretty much <laughs> how old are your kids? Um, 17 and 15 ah, so, good. two boys is it? Girl or a boy yeah. nice age so, yeah Fun times. Um, all right, so I normally go, if you could give one piece of advice to your 20-year-old self, what would it be? So it's probably advice you'd give your kids right now. What would it be? Um, so it's probably a couple of things. Um, I think reflect more. Um, yeah, I think the, the older I've gotten and, and the, with the experiences that I've had, the more I reflect, I think the, the better I understand. Um, Listen more. Yeah, I think you'll be a better listener. Um, yeah, I think sometimes you can listen a lot and not hear anything, but so probably a bit of both. Do you think, um, before you get to your third one, do you think this obsession we have with being busy just stops leaders? Yeah. I mean, I agree. A big part of growth and leadership is listen and reflect more, and we just don't build that into our time, our day. I think it's the it's the most underrated activity, whether you're a leader or not. I think it's well and truly the most underrated activity and um, and I think a lot of people struggle to classify it as work. Um, yeah, it's, you know, they, a lot of people have task completion, you know, that's, that's how they define their productivity, you know, whereas writing a list, you know, sitting with it in your head, however you do it, of what you did, how you felt about it, how it made you, you know, how you think it made other people feel, um, was it effective, was it not effective, those sorts of things, it's not, um, it's not sort of feels like it's tangible work. Um, yet your ability to execute and complete your other work that you classified as work is enhanced greatly by it. And I think it took me a long time to really understand that um, you can't just sort of, you know, skate through life and hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, if, you, if you really want to achieve yeah. something good. Excellent. Um, so what's your final And, and the last one is um, don't try and solve everybody's problems. Um, you know, I, it's one of the things that it's, um, you know, I, I enjoy doing and, and I have a capability you know, about you know, problem solving. Sometimes you've got to let people... Um, not always save people and give them the answers and stuff like that just because it's quick and easy and sometimes makes you feel good. Mm. <laughs> Structure your own ego. Um, do, you, do you approach your kids the same way with that, the parenting and leadership? Yeah, and I think, again, there's probably... Um, yeah, I think um, 
the opportunity to have children um, is one of the greatest leadership courses you can ever go on. <laughs> um, and I think like a leadership journey, you get better from practice and you get better from experience. And I think with them teaching them how to solve their own problems and um, sit with their mistakes and, and so on, I think I've gotten better at that. Um, yeah, I read a book, uh, or uh, not a book, uh, an article the other day. It was um, by a guy who was a, uh, was a Navy SEAL. And uh, yeah, he's kind of a real hardcore guy. Uh, he said the worst thing you can ever do is um, tie your kid's shoelaces. Because <laughs> um, you know, he said that it's one of those things that is incredibly, it's a incredibly powerful um, set of abilities for, and a sense of achievement for a, for a child. And, so, and the first time you do it, you do it because you're in a hurry. Um, yeah. And because you, know, you can't wait for five minutes for them to muck it up seven times before they get it right and follow your instructions enough and have the dexterity to, um, to do it, um, which I thought was really, really interesting. And you sort of made me think about when, when's the right point to stop solving your kids' problems? Yeah. And it's probably right at the start. You've just got to help them solve their own problems. Yeah, and again, the same with work. When's, yeah. the, when's the right time to go mm. figure it out? Yeah. Thank you, Matt. This has been a pleasure. It's great to catch up after not seeing each other for yeah. a few years. So um, keep making the difference. I, like I said, you know, genuinely, I still your legacy at NAB is still going on. Um, and if anyone can make our nanas proud of the finance industry, I've got no doubt it's people like you. So thank you for being part of the podcast. Thanks, Gabrielle. Thank you for having me on. It's a real, real privilege um, to be able to chat with somebody who is so engaged in the leadership landscape and, um, and doing so much to make it, a, um, make it a better practice. So thank you for having me on. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast in the Authentic Leadership series. Visit the resource library on Gabrielle's website to access a collection of free material on business storytelling and thought leadership.